Hello, fellow movie lovers, and welcome to Cult Fiction, a podcast where we examine Hollywood's redheaded stepchildren. As a redheaded stepchild myself, I'm Stephanie Johnson. And I'm Andy Bowell. And today we are pulling back Hollywood's crypt to review Guillermo del Toro's sophomore film, the 2001 foreign language horror feature, The Devil's Backbone. Which is such a sick title. Such an amazing title. And such an amazing movie. This was a treat. This was delightful in the way that, like, I think anybody would expect Guillermo del Toro to be. Like, the man has grown to be probably a top three artistic director of films in our modern day and this is just what he was breaking his teeth on 20 years ago it's truly like taking one of your favorite bands and then listening to their first album which you haven't ever listened to and being like oh all of their other music makes so much more sense now this is Guillermo del Toro's EP I'm here for this this is brilliant (laughs) connection Well, it just, there's so many motifs and touches that appear in his later work. So many. Like, actually watching this, it is kind of like a, oh, you just have, like, four or five things that you love to talk about and keep doing them over and over and over again in all your films, huh, Guillermo? I wasn't going to bring this up until later because it's kind of deep, but... The thesis of all of Del Toro's work is that men are the real monsters. Mankind is always going to be worse than any monster you could dream up. Yeah. And there's a theory that, you know, artists only tell the same story over and over and over again. They just come up with different ways to say that. Mm. And this is Del Toro's. By the way, humanity is terrible and we're awful to each other. Yeah, I mean, I think I think that thesis for Del Toro that comes up again and again is fascism sucks. Yeah, that's fair too. <laughs> <laughs> How can I say it? Spanish fascism sucks. Other Spanish fascism sucks. American fascism sucks. How do you explain the one where there's just monsters fighting in the ocean? Alien fascists. Alien fascists. Like in Iron Sky. Oh, yeah, you know what? That makes sense. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. (laughs) Well, in case you missed it, because I wrote it this time, The Devil's Backbone is a Spanish Civil War saga masquerading in a ghost story's clothing. We follow preteen Carlos through his time at an isolated and failing boarding school. As he discovers the school's dark secrets, only one of which is an actual ghost, We learn how deeply trauma and secrets can root into walls and that even defunct bombs can still tick. This movie earns its tagline in every moment. The living will always be more dangerous than the dead. And yeah, so something I want to talk about um, is we brought up this is a very early feature in Guillermo del Toro's work. This is his baby steps This is a brilliant movie, but is also a very raw movie, I think. And a lot of the story and and scripting and everything, but is visually beautiful in like that art house kind of way. From one of the very first things we see on screen is a car driving down a road and on one half of the road is dry grass and wheat and on the other half of the road is just burned destruction and it's just like oh that's good that's simple that's effective that's brilliant i love it it's like an early picasso it's still early work but it's gonna still be a fucking picasso it's beautiful right absolutely so i think yeah his there's some stutters there's um some clumsy skip script writing which i can forgive because apparently the man wrote this while he was in college 
Yeah. I can't imagine writing anything this good while I was in college. I can't imagine producing the stuff I did write while I was in college. Right? And he says it's still his favorite movie, which I can kind of see because it's like, here's this really unfiltered, uncut diamond I produced. Yeah. And it's all of my pet topics. Well, and I've never seen Kronos, which is his very first film. And I've heard it is very good in kind of the same way. But I have to imagine that that is his, like, that is his version of bad taste. That is his, I made this movie. That's his clerks. Mm -hmm. I made this movie with all the money I could muster to try and prove to the film world that I can make it. And then he did prove he made it. And then legendary Spanish cult filmmaker Pedro Maldivar saw Kronos and was like, I'm producing your next movie, kid. <laughs> and we get the devil's backbone. All that to say, this is him, not with like a blank check, not, not at the height of his powers, he can do whatever he wants with CGI, but with means and capability beyond what he probably had ever worked with before and gets to make a horror movie and set his vision and so I can I can totally imagine that this is like oh I always remember my my firstborn even though this is a second film it's like the first one that was like oh this is perfect this is my film where I get to like show off a little yeah and he does I mean he has so many influences we have ghosts that are directly influenced by Japanese horror that mm -hmm. have white faces with cracks and very heavy dark eyeliner looks like straight out of the Grudge. We have all of his floating blood water fascination. Yeah. Talk about author. Talk about directors who don't have a faith but are obsessed with the Catholic faith. I mean, yeah. Especially because this one was um, the story of The Devil's Backbone was loosely based off of a Mexican comic book that Guillermo del Toro read and enjoyed, which was a semi-autobiographical account of somebody who went through a very similar experience in a Mexican Catholic school. Interesting. I cannot confirm or deny how haunted this, ma this Catholic school was, but... Well, apparently Guillermo del Toro um, was maybe haunted by his uncle. Which is the most Guillermo del Toro shit I can... I can just imagine him saying that at parties, like... Oh, yeah. I was oh, haunted by my uncle. My uncle's a ghost, and he would haunt me, and that's why I'm so, like, in tune with this, this macabre world. It's like, oh, you know what? It works. Whatever. I'm not going to question it. <laughs> I love it. I love his grasp. On, he walks this line really finely between things that are scary and things that are still connectable. So, yeah. like, he doesn't make it where it's so scary that, like, oh, my God, you shit your pants while you watch it and you can't, you can't keep your eyes open. It's very rootable. Does that make sense? Like, root, you can root for it or it's rooted in a reality. It's slightly rooted in a reality. Sure. I get that. Where it's, like... I could believe that there is a ghost in this world. I could believe there's a ghost in this world. Despite the presence of a ghost in this world, it is still such an effective fairy tale that I am willing to accept that there's a ghost in this world. Because that's Guillermo del Toro's like, entire thing is like horror fairy tale archetypal, archetypical storyline. Mm -hmm. over and over and over again and you bring up a good point and I think it's worth noting Guillermo del Toro has won an Oscar he's won a couple of Oscars but he won for Pan's Labyrinth is the one that specifically is I'm, I'm citing here which has some incredibly creepy unsettling terrifying moments and the Oscars are an institution that is very famously horror averse Mm -hmm. Like, it, it is next to impossible to get the Academy to recognize a horror movie as a work of art. And mm -hmm. Del Toro's done it twice. Mm -hmm. So that is just the testament of how finely he can balance on that pin needle of 
this is spooky and creepy and makes me feel weird and like a little kid is probably going to hate this and be terrified of it. But as I'm watching it, I'm feeling like all these positive feelings. I'm feeling a resonance and, and this does feel believable. I agree with you. It's I think that's because he's making the bigger monster of the people. Right. Absolutely. And in that is how that's his like secret sauce that's how it works because if we didn't have Jacinto the evil school custodian I suppose who also grew up working at the school and going to the school but at the end of the day he's gonna kill children and like do anything to get his yeah without him the movie is lacking somehow without him the movie just becomes kind of a jump scare oh there's a ghost ah right and and it is tried and true and it's been done before to make the ghost the bad thing yeah and this is un i think what makes this so genius is that we hear from very early on in the movie the ghost says um many of you will die many Mm -hmm. of you will perish and so we go through the whole movie thinking, okay, the ghost is going to murder these kids, is going to set off something. But the ghost is instead warning the main yeah. characters and saying, hey, this is, you are headed for some bad times. I'm trying to save you. Right. Because it does the other lovely thing where Guillermo del Toro and like, he has the uh, the character of Dr. Cesare kind of say this out loud, and it's the first thing we hear in the film. He plays with this idea that, like, maybe a ghost is something unstuck from time that can still talk to us. Mm-hmm. Maybe the ghost of Santi is just trying to warn anyone who will listen that death is coming but because Santi is this horrifying ghost who has blood dripping forward and floating through the air coming out of his forehead, nobody can actually stop and listen to him because they're too busy being like, oh my God, a ghost. Right. I love the physicality of Santi too. Yeah. Santi? Santi. I think Santi, yeah. I love the physical the physicality of Santi too because he had he leaves behind wet footprints he there's shrills that follow him wherever he goes and then his floating blood that comes out from above his head just everything about the visuals around him is just perfect yeah and we we haven't even talked about the movie all that much and i want to get into that but before that i have this secret theory in my mind that makes the devil's backbone to me at least so much more enjoyable okay so you have seen the film Crimson Peak. I know this because we've shown it to you. Yes. Um, and listeners, if you've seen Crimson Peak, it's, it's one of his more Del Toro's more well-known horror films. I strongly believe that Crimson Peak and The Devil's Backbone exist in the same universe. And the only thing I have to go off that is the way ghosts work is exactly the same in both films down to the point where you have blood that drips out of a ghost and floats through the air like it's in water you have ghosts that are physically tied to the area in which they died and can like roam around loosely outside it but like they generate every night in the place where they died you have ghosts that are absolutely horrifying but are in fact just trying to warn people about other more horrific things aka the vicious and wicked human beings who are running around i just think it makes too much sense and i could it, it were i guillermo del toro 12 movies later i would absolutely be like this one's my baby and I love how the ghost mechanics in it work, and I want to redo that now that I have, like, CGI and can do whatever I want. <laughs> so that's my, like, pet theory hot take. Listeners, watch 
The Devil's Backbone, and then watch Crimson Peak and tell me, I defy you to tell me, they do not take place in the same universe. I think that makes sense. I'm with you on that. Okay. I'm with you on that because I think they're just both happening in Guillermo del Toro's picture of how the world works. Yeah. And they both happen in his picture of the world. The and end. that's all it takes. Yeah. He does have a tendency to link his movies together. I was reading that he sees this in Pan's Labyrinth as like a set of twins mm. where this is the brother of the twin set and Pan's Labyrinth is the sister, which makes a lot of sense to me because one of them has a very masculine energy and then the other one is about a little girl running around in the underground literal labyrinth. Well, more than that, more than just it has a masculine energy, it's, it is it is about a little boy. Yeah. It's in one you have a little boy, in the other you have a little girl. Both of them are dealing with fantastical, mystical elements and trials that they have to overcome. While in the background, the real bad thing, which is Spanish fascism, is going around and making life horrible. Yeah. Exactly. And they both have overwhelmingly negative father figures in the movie. Um, There's an uh, exterior supernatural good that Mm -hmm. kind of helps them through the movie. Yeah, for sure. So they kind of like come as a set. And when I found out about that, I was like, oh, I kind of want to watch these back to back now. I think you could think of a lot worse double features. And interestingly, if you don't count Mimic 2, which you shouldn't, it's it's a like crazy movie about a giant cockroach monster thing that he happened to write. Um, the only film he made between making Devil's Backbone and Pan's Labyrinth was Hellboy. So oh, like, yeah. He dipped in and indulged in making one of his favorite comic books into a movie and then went back to, like, this oeuvre, this thing that, like, when you let Guillermo do whatever he wants to do, he makes this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that Hellboy 2 was his parenthetical. He's like, wait. Okay, now I can go back. I need a palate cleanser, and that palate cleanser is Ron Perlman in red makeup. Go. I mean... Isn't that your palate cleanser? Listen, we have not watched a Ron Perlman vehicle on this film, but you want to talk about people I have an unhealthy crush on. You have an unhealthy crush on Ron Perlman? Oh, yeah. I'm so happy I'm learning this now in real time. (laughs) I mean, I think I'd just rather, like, drink a bar out of business with him than anything, like... You want to drink a bar out of business? With Ron Perlman. You mean you want to have a drink at a bar? Right, but have so many drinks that, like, eventually they're like, guys, you've drunk us out of house and home. Oh, okay, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yes, okay. My crush on Ron Perlman aside, though fun fact, this is one, this is not one of, this is the only film Guillermo del Toro has made that did not have either Ron Perlman or Doug Jones in it. So say what you will about Guillermo del Toro, when he likes you, he carries you around in his pocket and puts you in all of his movies. Here, Doug, do this. Here, Doug, do this. Oh, I can't use you because you're on the Hocus Pocus set? Eh, I'll get you next time. Exactly. But... Um, Getting into the meat of the film a, a, a bit, a bit yeah. more. We've talked about how there's a little boy. That little boy is our protagonist, and his name is Carlos. And this is the story of Carlos learned growing into manhood in that kind of harrowing, oh, I've overcome some shit way. Mm-hmm. Um, but it has a lot of like the classic trope trappings of a kind of coming-of-age story. You have the antagonist kid, the bully, the initial bad guy who is somebody who gets over his own shit and eventually becomes like a tried and true companion of Carlos. Mm -hmm. You have the actual thing that you need to overcome, which is Jacinto Mm -hmm. in this case. And I 
think this movie would not be nearly as good without the talents of Fernando Tielve. And I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm going to do my best. Carlos. Carlos. The mm-hmm. actor, uh, Fernando Tielve, Carlos. He does a really great job in this role. And Carlos is this really great character, I think, because there are so many things. Say what you will about the writing, and we will. Mm-hmm. There are so many great things about that character, our hero, our protagonist, that work really well. Like, when we first see him, some freedom fighters are driving him to the orphanage because his parents have been killed. None of this is told to us. But, like, he's just this little fancy boy running around in, like, a little gentleman's jacket Uh with a suitcase full of straight-up luxuries for a child his age, a.k.a comic books and toys and and shit like that we're immediately told so many things about him by that and by the juxtaposition between all these orphaned boys and this freshly orphaned boy who like doesn't even know he's an orphan yet he's clever he's consistently clever he's consistently a smart intelligent character who thinks about another way to solve the problem which is why he realizes oh I should start listening to the ghost it's trying to tell me something mm-hmm. and it's just a really effective and, and good performance I think que es un fantasma un evento terrible condenado a repetirse una y otra vez Guillermo del Toro is really good at um, setting shortcuts really well. So he does a lot of that in his setting up, which then the actor who plays Carlos is just fantastic at like really bringing home. Yeah. He's able to portray childhood fear very, very well. But he also, yeah, you're right. He comes across as really smart, as really... Um, ballsy in a really specific way yeah because I'm, I'm i'm i think you're thinking about the same moment i am when he first gets into a fight with jaime mm-hmm. the other antagonistic boy and kind of goads jaime into actually striking which then gets jaime in trouble mm-hmm. but is smart enough to go like if i punch this kid back i'm in deep shit mm-hmm. um and is just consistently like kind of this inquisitive soul who's going to listen and kind of has a a better understanding of what's going on than you would think a nine or ten year old boy might and consistently uses that to his own benefit the protagonist angle of the story is chosen really well and that we like our protagonist is someone who clearly has an old soul and who asks a ton of questions half of the scene he's in he's just following around an adult asking questions or following around another kid asking questions or following around a ghost asking questions asking questions are you a bad thing what do you mean we're all going to die instead of just like running terrified yeah he's really brave and really smart and the my favorite thing about him is that he sets the plot pace for us so we kind of go through and discover what's happening in the school with him which is also one of just my favorite things when a director or um, producer does where it follows the main character and we know as much as they do exactly he's a perfect point of view character because there's nobody else we could hone in on that it would all be new information in the same way because he's the only new kid in the orphanage. Yes. Yeah. And we have some very badly written exposition where it's like, let me tell you about this thing. I am the doctor who works at this school. Sure, for sure. Yeah, the, the writing does show flaws. Yeah. And I think it's just also a case of early work where it's like I haven't figured out how to portray this just yet it's a case of early work it's a case of 
I have nobody who's going to polish this for me. Mm. So, like, the thing that stuck that stuck out the most in my mind, this whole thing is set in the backdrop of the Spanish Civil War. And the only characters we have are older people and young orphaned boys. There's one woman, there's one able-bodied man, and there's two other, like, 40-year-old dudes. The only other people we see are the Freedom Fighters. So we've got these three guys who are in the orphanage and ostensibly are not part of the Spanish Civil War. Jacinto and the two other dudes, whose names I don't think we even ever even hear. And Jacinto, we understand, has a scheme very quickly on into the film that he is trying to break into the safe and get the gold so that he can go do whatever he wants with a bunch of ill-gotten gold. He brings this up to his two compatriots at one point, and they straight up are like, we don't believe you. Even if we did believe you, there's nothing to buy with gold. Find me a chicken. I would rather have that. Screw you, Jacinto. And they go off. And then later at the end of the film, after Jacinto has revealed himself to be the villain and the bad guy and done a bunch of deplorable shit, they follow along in tow with him and are like, yeah, let's go get the gold. And I, I sat there and was like, what the fuck? <laughs> we also have the principal of our school, whose name is just Carmen. Mm. That's all we're given. Um... And her motivation is increasingly unclear throughout the movie. She stays at the school because her husband has passed. And that's where he passed. And she's beholden unto the school, I guess. Somebody's got to look after these orphan boys. Sure. But then she fucks Jacinto... For no real reason, and it's implied that she's been doing so for years since even before her husband died, possibly since before Jacinto was legal? Sure. Question mark? And it has nothing to do with anything. So I actually have a theory about this. Okay. Lay your theory on me. I think the artistic thing you could do is try to make this argument that Carmen is a character of incredibly mixed morals. She wants to be a freedom fighter. She wants to do right by these boys. And she wants to fuck the young 20-year-old. Although maybe, like you say, maybe she's been fucking him long since he was a 20-year-old. And she's deeply ashamed of it. And it, it, it gives her motivation for her sacrificial heroic actions. I think that's one thing you could you could make an argument for. What I actually think is that renowned hypersexual Spanish filmmaker Pedro Amaldivar wanted to inject some Pedro Amaldivar into this film and so thought up a couple of sex sequences and told Guillermo del Toro, hey, I'm going to finance this film for you, but I get to, like, make it sexy in a Pedro Malavar way, which means, like, so sexy it's uncomfortable. And Guillermo del Toro said, sure. Okay. <laughs> I, I respect you. You've been doing this since the 70s. Interesting. I mean, that makes sense. It's a little bit of paying the piper of, like, you're paying for my movie. I get to give you what you want. And really, there's only one erotic moment in this film, and it's when we see Carmen and Jacinto having sex and the moment after the moments afterwards. Mm-hmm. And it does feel so out of place that I'm just like, I wonder if this got put in by somebody other than Guillermo del Toro. It's shoehorned in, and it's really random, and it doesn't pay off, and it just doesn't, it doesn't feel like it needs to be there. Yeah, like, it's, it's referenced, but you're right, it's, it, it never really is paid off. But at the same time, I'm thinking about other references in the movie. There's a lot of references to <clears throat> uh, dysfunctions of certain body parts. Yeah. And I'm remembering this is the same man who made reference to a fish man having a penis 
using a hand gesture that none of us can unsee. Indeed. So, eh. 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 I, this is a very art house film and I have a lot of like art house takes. Like maybe we're supposed to read into the, the twisted morality of Carmen and that's the only way they could do it. Or maybe Jacinto, the character himself, is a metaphor for the greed and like cancerous effect of fascism. Because at the end of the day, he is a character who decides my situation sucks I'm scared of all this stuff going on. And so what I'm going to do is be absolutely deplorable and steal and murder and just put myself above everything. Because don't I deserve it for the pain that I've endured? Mm -hmm. Which is like the bedrock of how you get a Nazi Germany or a Francoist Spain is countries going something awful happened to us so it justifies our need to be strong and powerful by all means necessary but like i don't know if i just made that up i don't know if guillermo toro would be like yes jacinto is a metaphor for fascism or if he'd been like wow no jacinto is a bad guy <laughs> I mean, I don't know. The actor who played Jacinto said that, like, he wrote a whole diary for Jacinto and his major motivation was he just had a shitty childhood and he hates that he's still there yeah. in the place where he had his shitty childhood. His shitty childhood where he was certainly uh, varying degrees of mistreated. I mean, I think it's probably not beyond comprehension that Carmen has been active with him for years. Yeah. No, I get it. And that really does, like, muddy the waters of her character. Mm -hmm. Because we're meant to feel like she is a, a damaged, noble character. And the love interest with Dr. Cesare, the man who loves her and has always loved her but would never touch her and kind of hears her fucking Jacinto through the wall. Yeah. Yeah. And you're wondering how long has she or how long has he heard? Right. I mean, but also Jacinto literally steals her leg because it has all gold in it. So... Steals her leg because it's got gold in it. Murders his fiance in cold blood because she realizes he's a piece of shit. Actively sabotages a vehicle in such a way that murders a dozen children at least. Like irredeemable bad guy i i was sitting here trying to like figure this out from the beginning and i was like okay who killed santi oh was it was it jaime was that a little piece of shit jaime oh no you know what i bet it was dr cesare and they're gonna do that thing where he seems nice but he's evil and jacinto seems prickly and like complicated but he's gonna be the heroic one in the end who kills the ghost and it was like no the guy you thought was probably a piece of shit was a piece of shit. The guy who, like, seemed like he was a decent enough fellow was a decent enough fellow. And maybe came back from the dead to save them in the end. Definitely came back from the dead, but we're going to really not show. We've only got enough makeup budget for one ghost. <laughs> so we have to be careful about this. I, listeners, I bet like five bucks that this film would end with our surviving children walking out into the like barren Spanish desert area they're surrounded in. And Carlos would look back at the orphanage and the ghosts of everyone who died there would be looking back at him from the shadows and 
I feel like if you gave Gamo two more days of shooting and 20,000 more dollars, I would have gotten it. But instead, we get like the leg of Dr. Cesare's ghost watching the boys walk away. Yeah, and it's pointing out instead of back in towards the school. Right. But still, it's a very, it was a very predictable end shot. And I was like, yes, yes, this is very good. It was very good. I got annoyed because I thought I could guess it right. Also, couldn't uh, drop the thread in my mind that the likelihood of all of those boys making it when we are told by the film it is a day and a half's walk with no water to the next town. Yeah. I'm just saying poor little owl is going to die. <laughs> like 20 minutes in, you lean over to me and you're like, owl is toast. No kid named owl is going to survive. No kid named owl survives a movie like this. <laughs> and I was almost right. You were almost right and probably were. <laughs> Um, going back to just the characterization of young boys, very quickly, there's a moment in which we see, like, um, I think it's Galvez, who is Owl's other friend in the orphanage. He starts trading with Carlos, and what they're trading is a comic book for a marble made of dried snot. And they're both... 100% in like, oh my god, that's a really good snot marble you've got there. That's totally worth my comic book. <laughs> and I just thought it was a really like great depiction of what a bunch of little boys might be like. Yeah. They're going to read comics and draw and tell each other ghost stories and like follow the leader and be silly little kids when they're not being traumatized. Yeah. I think that was some of... Let me try that again. The scenes with all of the children um, clumped together as they're trying to work their way through figuring out what to do next after it becomes very clear no adult is there to help them are some of my favorite scenes because of how they think. Yeah. And it's very fun. Fun might be the wrong word. It's very... Engaging. Engaging. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. Um, just a couple of interesting things. Um, this is a foreign language film. Yeah, this is set in Spain and is shot in Spanish. And I personally just cannot do a dub when it's live action. Mm -hmm. my, my brain bristles and I hate that. So we watched it, you know, with subtitles. This is only like the second or third foreign film we mm. watched on Cult Fiction, which feels fascinating to reflect on. Like depending on um, where you consider the anime films we've watched, mm. which I know I at least watched with a dub because I can tolerate it when it's animated. Mm -hmm. um, if you don't count all of the horror comedies, this is only the fifth horror film we've watched on Cult Fiction out of 80 films. So I thought that was interesting. Ooh. Yeah. Okay. And I just, I, I like this film very much. I think it's the kind of movie that like I could go back to and watch every like five, ten years. Like... Yeah. This isn't the last time I'm going to watch The Devil's Backbone. Yeah. Which is higher praise than I think a lot of the films we watch on this show. Yeah. But is it cult? I think it's a pet project. Which is like... Can be cult. It's a circle that's half out of another circle. Do you know what I mean? So a Venn diagram? <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Except the circles aren't equally sized, was what I meant to say. Oh, uh, okay, okay. That makes much more sense. Fuck off. <laughs> but yes, I think I think there is a special subsection of cult movies that are also just like pet projects. Yeah, and, and we've watched a couple. I, I mentioned Bad Taste, the movie that it took Peter Jackson five years to make because he was just 
fucking around with his friends doing it. I, I, I think this is a better film. I think this has more intention to be a real film. But I think it's kind of in the same vibe as that, for sure. Yeah, I think you're right. It's like this really sincere love letter. Yeah. Which Guillermo del Toro knows how to write a love letter. Yeah. So, I agree with that. Um, it made very little money, but it was not expecting to make a lot of money. This was still in, like, his art house days. This is ostensibly the film that somebody saw and was like, we'd like you to make Hellboy with, like, a real budget. And he was like, fuck yeah. Okay. So. Let me call my friend Ron. It's got that. But, yeah, I, I... The whole point of the show is to decide if it's cult or not. I don't necessarily know if you've got a bunch of people talking about the devil's backbone outside of like your local college's film campus. Yeah. Which makes it something different than cult to me. I can see this being someone's favorite movie. I can't see this being a lot of people's like secret hidden you have to watch the devil's backbone no 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 you haven't lived until you've seen it. Right. Especially especially when there are so many things in this film that, like, even if that's the thing that you love, like, no, 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 you don't understand. Nobody does ghosts like Guillermo del Toro. Well, then go watch Crimson Peak. Yeah. Nobody does dark fantasy like Guillermo del Toro. Oh, yeah, I know. Pan's Labyrinth is an amazing movie. No one does fish out of water stories. So proud. So proud of yourself. <laughs> so pleased with myself. <laughs> Nobody does uncomfortable sex scenes like Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> Maybe he did write that sex scene, because now I'm thinking about the ones from Shape of Water. <laughs> I think they're lovely. Oh, God, do I want to fuck a fish? No, you want to fuck a fish monster man who's somehow, like, noble. Oh, yeah. Also primal. Yeah, that tracks. <laughs> well, you know what else is attractive we'd maybe like to see down to his skivvies and you know what else is noble but primal <laughs> our good sir kevin bacon especially from that clip and footloose <laughs> cue the saxophone exactly so i'm very interested because the thing about this movie is it has a ton of well-known Spanish actors. Yeah. It has a ton of people who are, like, very well-known in Spain and Mexico. You mentioned Carmen. She is played by Marissa Paredes, who I don't think I've seen in anything before, but, like, I understand to be a, a famous Spanish actor. You've also got... Frederico Lupi and Eduardo Noriega and all these people who I'm sure are in shit, but just not shit I watch because I don't watch a lot of Spanish films. So how are we going to bake in this bitch? I mean, I bake into this bitch through Carmen. Okay, well then, uh, I, I, before I accidentally say another name and spoil it, how, how I, I'm actually really curious how, how that's possible. Well, she was in da, 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 Lines of Wellington. With our good friend John Malkovich. Oh, okay. And John Malkovich was in Queen's Logic with Kevin Bacon. Sure was. Okay, all right. Well, I tip my cap to you. I give you the little slug that I collected in the, like, abandoned pool under the orphanage where the ghost lives. I'm making an, an extended reference to the movie we watched. I forgot about the slugs. Yeah. I had locked that part out. No, the boys trade slugs like they're Pokemon cards, and it's kind of adorable. <laughs> also, 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 say what you will about Guillermo del Toro. The man knows how to hire a fucking set designer. Because mm -hmm. he just loves creepy underwater pool basement situations and they always are amazing 
Anyway, had to get that out. You win. I, I, I give you the snail. I have the slug. <laughs> but just to show my own work, I did not think this would be possible to do without running through my other male crush, as we've now determined, Ron Perlman, who is in every other Guillermo del Toro movie. So I was like, okay, I just have to figure out which of these actors have done another Guillermo del Toro movie. Turns out, a couple of the orphan boys, including uh, Fernando Tele, Carlos, uh, were in Pan's Labyrinth. He was like, hey, hey, young boy actors, come be in my next Spanish-speaking film. And they were like, okay. Like a pack of street urchins. Anyway. <laughs> Just like newsies following Guillermo del Toro around. Yes, Mr. Del Toro. Absolutely, Mr. Del Toro. We'll be in any movie for you, Mr. Del Toro. I can see it, and I, I have to believe if anyone can make that not creepy, it's call me Totoro-san, Guillermo del Toro. <laughs> anyway. Um, Fernando Teve was in Pan's Labyrinth with Ron Perlman. Sure. Ron Perlman was famously in the original Hellboy with um, God, uh, uh, with John Hurt, famous English actor John Hurt, who was in Jane Mansfield's car with Kevin, Kevin Bacon. Bacon. So Nice. Thank you. I'm still happy with it. I would be too. You did some actual work. Oh, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> did you actually work for an Oscar? I, I think I did. I, I think I got a spicy Oscar. Ooh, give me your spicy Oscar. I will. And then you'll give me mine because on every episode of Cult Fiction, we believe every film deserves at least a couple Oscars. This film has a thing about it that is... Prominent in the marketing, prominent in the trailer, prominent in the, like, story of the film. And we have not talked about it but once because of how, I think, actually immaterial it is. So I would like to give the Oscar for Biggest Chekhov's Gun to the dud bomb in The Devil's Backbone. Yeah. There is a bomb that dropped out of the sky and landed in the courtyard of the orphanage and sits there and is present in so many shots and is practically a character. And the kids, like, reference that there's a ghost in the bomb and, like, they dare each other to knock on it to see if it explodes. And the whole time you're sitting there being like, this fucking bomb's gonna do something. Mm -hmm. Something's gonna happen. A, a fucking ghost is gonna come out of that bomb and get Jacinto or something. And even when there is a devastating explosion in this courtyard, it has nothing to do with the bomb. Correct. So that is my Oscar and that is my rant. I love it. I also have a similar rant for my Oscar. Okay. We've briefly touched on it. My Oscar is best hiding spot for cash. <laughs> sure. Okay, because we talked about how this woman is hiding gold in her leg. Yes. And it is established probably 10 minutes into the movie that Carmen... Carmen has had her leg amputated at the knee, and she walks using a uh, false leg. Yeah, prosthetic leg that she, like, it's, it's very busy. She has to turn a crank in it for her knee to work right, and it's it's, it's a very cool prosthetic leg. It, but it's very Victorian turn of the century, yeah. where it's like, there's straps involved, there's buckles and stuff. And at one point during the film's climax building up to the final action she says oh my leg is so heavy and you think oh this is about how like when people have leg injuries or bone injuries they're like oh i can feel it coming to rain or something in my joints no her leg is actual heavy because she's carrying around actual gold and her actual fucking leg cavity and she's like yeah i'm just carrying around brooks of gold in my fucking fake leg 
which is is brilliant. It's so good. It's so good. It it becomes a whole thing of where did she hide the gold? It's not in the safe. What the hell? Jacinto's freaking out. And then he finally stumbles upon her leg and, like, realizes it had that secret cavity. And then, ta-da! Gold! And then he drowns himself with it. Yeah, also, we didn't mention this, Jacinto goes out like a bitch. Like, it is a bad death. Yeah. He gets stabbed through the armpit by a sharpened stake and then beaten up by a bunch of children and then pushed in a pool where he sees a ghost of the boy he murdered and, like, drowns because his pockets are filled with gold. It's it's so many steps and it is a mwah, death. It's so good. I love when people die of their own greed yeah. in a very physical and exact way. He dies... Drowning because he can't untie himself quickly enough. Right. Ah, so good, so good. So good. No notes for that part, Guillermo del Toro. Beautiful, beautiful. (laughs) Let's see if the next one is just as beautiful. Let's see if we have any notes on the next film we pick here on Cult Fiction. And like every episode, what we're going to do to cap us off here and find our next film is we're going to ask the Hollywood Crypt. And the way we do that is by running a random number generator of the 271 films still on the list of the Hollywood Crypt. Do-do-do-do-do-do. And next time on Cult Fiction, we're going to be looking at number 35... And number 35 is a very different film indeed. Next time on Cult Fiction, we will be watching the 2008 sex comedy, Forgetting Sarah Marshall. Okay. Which I have never seen. Have you ever seen? Yes, I have. Okay. It is... There... Wow. It's a lot. There is, um... A Muppet opera. Okay, I'm done with this. There's a Muppet opera scene. Stop spoiling my Oscar. Okay. <laughs> well, before I spoil your Oscar, that's all for this edition of Cult Fiction. You can follow, rate, and review us on iTunes or we wherever you get your podcasts. We'll close the crypt for now. But join us next time as we all remember that they really tried to make Russell Brand a thing and tried to convince us all that that man was both funny and sexy in the aughts. Spoiler alert, he was never either. (laughs) For Stephanie Johnson, I've been Andy Boel.